Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be talking about Sandman number 22, Season of Mists, episode one. Cover date, January 1991. The artist on this, the penciler, was Kelly Jones. The inker is Malcolm Jones III. The original colorist was Steve Olaf. The letterer, Todd Klein. Tom Payer as assistant editor. And Karen Berger as editor. Well, we were just talking off mic before we started recording, Brent, that uh, this is another particularly dense issue, especially the the beginning of it. But before we turn our attention to it, I want to let listeners know about a bonus series that Brandon and I have been doing over on Patreon. Because since we wrapped up Dream Country, uh, our really awesome listeners to shows across the network uh, helped us reach one of our crowdfunding goals on Patreon. And that goal was for Brandon and I to do a special bonus series on At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. And we're wrapping that up now, like this month, we're wrapping that up. And so uh, in between us covering volumes of Sandman, Brent, not only did we actually reach that goal, but Brandon and I recorded and published 14 episodes on that novel. And uh, it was a ton of work, but it also was just an exhilarating thing to do. We had a lot of fun. And if you're not already with us on Patreon, you can join us today at even the lowest tier of support and you get immediate access to the whole thing. Uh, and, And also, of course, dozens and dozens of other bonus episodes that are on there. And you can do that at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. But yeah, let's uh, let's talk about Sandman here, Brent. We called the last issue a prologue, and you know it very much was that in the kind of speculative fiction sense of prologue, right? It was an isolated story. It's kind of adjacent to the big story arc that we're going to get after that, uh, but it's also something that gives us some useful information about that big story arc. And I have to say that this issue, although it is called episode one, it also feels a little prologue in that it mostly serves here to give us a lot of background information about the speculative world of Sandman. Uh, this is the sort of thing that really excites me. So I had a lot of fun reading this issue again and taking notes on it this week, but it does still feel like we're just making sure that everyone who has uh, read all of the great press that Sandman is getting is able to jump on in this storyline. This issue... And I debated when to discuss this, but I think there's a good opening here, Glenn. Um, this issue uh, actually um, has a slightly interesting lineage. Apparently, Neil Gaiman originally wanted to jump right into the issue that follows this one. Originally, that was the plan, but his editor, Karen Berger, said, nope, you can't do that because there's some things going on with um, Hell, one of the locations we'll talk about in this issue, um, in DC continuity. And we need you to not do something about hell that messes with what's going on with that continuity this month. So you got to push it back a month. And apparently uh, there was a lot of disagreement and um, some uh, terse words were exchanged. And eventually uh, Neil did um, uh, relinquish and uh, apologize to Karen Berger. And uh, so we get the issue that we have. And so in some ways it was kind of an unplanned filler issue, but I think it does a great job of setting things up. But I think that is the reason why it does feel like almost a prologue part two to what is to follow. 
That's absolutely fascinating. I, I had no idea that that any of that had actually happened. And this will be great fodder for a discussion in, in the wrap-up episode to decide, you know, we can talk about whether or not this story arc is, is better or worse served by the inclusion of this issue. Though I will say just, you know, at the front here, I enjoyed this issue. So I'm, I'm certainly glad that it existed. But where where did you read about that, Brent? Where did you read about the, the sort of uh, creative history of this? Uh, that was from an interview in the Sandman Companion by High Bender, um, in which he is talking to Neil about the history of that a uh, little bit. Um, I've seen it mentioned in some of the online bits where I think he's mentioned in other interviews as well. But uh, specifically, I'm getting that from High Bender's Sandman Companion. Uh, I mean, as you mentioned, Glenn, this issue's got a lot of kind of wonderful building out of the world, um, both for uh, Dream and the Dreaming, as well as Hell um, and Lucifer that builds on what we've already seen in Sandman and just does some wonderful additional stuff. And I think that you and I are never in a place where we're going to say no to more world building by Neil Gaiman in these areas, right? <laughs> yeah, that that's how you would know that I've actually been body snatched, right? Is <laughs> if I ever start saying no to more world building, uh, you know something something is very much wrong. I'm I'm a changeling now and uh, you need to get some help. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's at least start talking about what's appearing on the page here, at least this first page. And as as you said, Brent, there's a lot of hell here. And so yeah, we begin this issue in hell. And we knew from episode zero, the the prologue, that we were coming here. We knew that we were going to come here with Dream, though that is not actually happening in this issue. And Gaiman gives us a bit about who is here, about who is in hell. And these fall into two types. There are the dead people who are being horribly tormented. Uh, and, and these, of course, are the majority of the inhabitants. This is you know, most of the people who are in hell. But then there are the demons, uh, or at least demon is the word that humanity uses to describe these things that uh, don't exist in any real biological sense. Uh, and these are the entities doing the torturing. But what struck me the most about this page, though, this page that we get on hell is the name itself. And let me just read the opening three lines of this. Once upon a time, there was a place that wasn't a place. It had many names, Avernus, Gehenna, Tartarus, Hades, Abaddon, Sheol. It was an inferno of pain and flame and ice where every nightmare had come true long since. We'll call it hell. So just to paraphrase this, right? Gaiman is essentially saying here, hey, here's six names that you have heard that Go with places to go after you die, right? Well, they're all the same place. There's only one place like this. And just to be clear, right, all of these names, these six names, they're all either from ancient Greek and Roman religions or they're from ancient Judaism. And strictly speaking, I'll say that even within those systems, these names are clearly not all referring to the same place. And just with the Greek and Roman names, for example, right, Tartarus and Hades are not the same place. They exist within the mythos of this religion as clearly distinct places with also different purposes and a very clear uh, spatial relationship, an actual like, clear geographical relationship to each other. Though, of course, what that is is something that changes over time, but there always is one that's uh, that's actually quite clear. Uh, Avernus is the other name from this religion that we get in this list here, and it's actually not part of the underworld at all. That's a location here on Earth that just happens to be one of the entrances to the underworld, just 
you know, as an example, we could do the same thing with the the Hebrew names as well. But that's actually all picking nits, and it's not really what strikes me about this passage. What strikes me is that while Gaiman has made this kind of move before, right? He's done it with the three women. Those are are, are people, but here we're talking about a place, and so. When we visited hell before, right, we saw that Lucifer was there and he's ruling with uh, two other demons. There's this you know, whole business with the triumvirate. But those are all people from the tradition of Abrahamic religions. But at least up to this point in the Sandman, we have not seen the god Hades. We haven't seen the ferryman Charon or any of the people associated with the Greek and Roman names for the underworld that Gaiman actually has invoked here, right? But we have met Calliope. And so I, I wonder, you know, where is Hades, the person? Where is the god Hades here? Yeah. I mean, he is for the for first time pulling in some of these places associated with some of the mythological pantheons that he is at times referenced or, as you noted with Calliope, brought a character in. And it's worth noting that in DC continuity, like Hades – is a character who has appeared, you know, most of the Greek gods have throughout various things. And so we've seen some personifications of some of those gods in DC continuity. But here we have the idea that we might see some of them within this continuity, but it also kind of shuffles everything together, right? So he's taken, and he, we've seen Neil do this before, and he does this, you know, much throughout the rest of his career and a lot of his other writings, he takes, you know, the various card decks of mythologies of places and, and people and things, and he shuffles them all together, right? I do want to mention in the script, which uh, Leslie Klinger mentions in the Annotated Sandman, uh, there's quite a bit that Neil gives in terms of the setup for what he wants depicted here um, in Hell. He says in the script, quote, we're looking at Hell, or at least a portion of it. Now, for this initial shot, I want to move as far away from the current interpretation of hell as possible. No twisted geometries, no flames everywhere, no giant maggots and heads on pikes, all that stuff. Let's look instead at what hell means to us. For me, it's concentration camps. Endless, bleak camps, flat, jerry-rigged buildings, shower rooms which are gas chambers, huge ovens for burning the bodies. Hell is living there. Hell for me is knowing that one day you'll go for your shower. Hell is really knowing what's going on in Auschwitz or Belsen, but pretending to yourself that you don't, because that makes it easier to get through the following day. That's part of hell. Hell is factories and industrial waste, air you can't breathe and water you can't drink. Hell is walking past the port of of New York authority building on a hot day and watching two men with dead eyes, stealing a handful of pennies from a third who sits on the sidewalk and silently cries as the first two divide their loot. That's the kind of hell we're looking at here. It's a long shot, but somewhere below us, there should be a number of terribly thin naked people standing up to their knees in mud. There's no sun in the sky and the horizon is muggy and smoggy composed of factory chimneys, belching smog and ash into the air. So that's from the script. So I, I find it interesting that, you know, we get reference in this first panel, as you said, Glenn, to all of these places, both from um, Abrahamic religions, but also from, you know, Greek religion, specifically in mythology. But then the image we get right away is, you know, naked bodies kind of lying in kind of muddy wastes. But then we get these belching, you know, smog factories in the background, right? 
there's a real focus here in the description on what it is like to be spending a, a day in hell. And I really enjoy this description of it from gaming here about, you know, the, the weird geometries. I mean, that's like explicitly a Lovecraftian reference, right? Uh, though not, you know, it's not only Lovecraft who uses weird geometries in, in wanting to uh, make scary places seem scary. I mean, I guess we could even think back to Hieronymus Bosch, who's someone that we've we've talked about uh, back when we did A Hope in Hell, when, uh, last time we were really in hell here in the Sandman, uh, but to move this to the experiences of people, to the the torment of it and the kind of uh, Kafka-esque nightmareness of it, right? That's not something that you've had Gaiman, that's not something that uh, Gaiman said there in the quote that you read, but you know that's there in kind of the background, this idea of you know, hell is factories, hell is homeless people, homeless people stealing from each other, right? Uh, that hell is modernity and yeah that's that's what kafka was writing about as as well and we we have actually seen this sort of thing in sandman before and i think that i don't want to get too far ahead of us here but i think that we're going to be talking about this again when we really have to deal with what happened to delight to make delight into delirium but we have definitely seen before where one of the the themes of the Sandman is a critique of modernity that we're getting from Gaiman. And I, I hadn't recognized that here in the depiction of hell. But now that now that I've heard you read what Gaiman has said on this, it seems so obvious. So here in this kind of first page, we get the sense of hell and how terrible it is. And again, almost over return to the more visceral kind of a slight rejection in the notes in the script of what was going on in a lot of popular culture in the late 80s in terms of how going off the wall about, you know, depicting some of these things with just a lot of flames and stuff, but just, you know, the visceralness of this and particularly what we see with, you know, the use of a kind of two-prong fork to skewer a body and then have one of its limbs torn it off. But then we have the ominous statement at the end of the page of this was as bad as it got. It couldn't get any worse, which just really sets up really high stakes because, you know, it's set up as clear foreshadowing of like, things are about to get a lot worse. <laughs> right. And this image here, the image where we get that text actually is, I think, showing us Lucifer, though that's not mm -hmm. spelled out here. But did you agree that that is Lucifer? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so, and he's got his back to the text and he's sort of looking down and it actually makes it almost look like this information that we're getting here, this text that we're getting is kind of his internal monologue, this internal, an internal monologue that ends on kind of a dour note. And I think that we'll want to keep that in mind for when we, we actually start to talk about what Lucifer is up to in this issue, though, you know, that will be a few scenes from now. I, I want to go back before we, before we leave this first page, Brent, just to the, the world building element here of the idea that there is really only one underworld that even though we've got many, many names for them uh, among the many different mythoses and religions that humanities have had, and even within them having multiple names. And he gives us two distinct instances of that, two distinct cultural instances of that as exemplars here, that it all is referring to the same thing. Because this was not the impression that I had about the way that this speculative universe was functioning in earlier issues. And specifically, I'm thinking here of something that Death said in The Sound of Her Wings, where she says, mostly they aren't too keen to see me. They fear the sunless lands. 
And we combine that with some of the other things that death says to people where people are asking, you know, like, what happens next? Uh, are, are, is the religious thing that I believe actually the real thing that happens when you die? And, you know, she says, well, you're about to, you're about to find out. And acts almost as if she herself isn't entirely clear. And I, I just don't really feel like the way that death is talking about the afterlife in that issue jives with what we have just gotten here. Well, I think we'll, that's something we can explore a little bit more as we go, even in this issue, but I think kind of in the series. It is worth noting that, you know, as Neil mentions in the script, we're looking at a portion of hell. But I also think that death referring to the sunless lands, which oftentimes that's referred to as if it's a unified place. I think the plural is very intentionally perhaps used in that issue by, uh, by Neil Gaiman. Um, in that hell is a place that you can go. It is not the place that you go. Right. That was definitely my sense as, as well. You've, you've, you've exactly articulated what I was implying. So I, I appreciate that. Right. Because <laughs> that was the sense that I had is that there are actually many underworlds and that what we're going to turn, what we're going to find out, it's going to turn out that they are all true and they're all different. But here it's, they are all true, but they're all the same. And yeah, that it just felt like it was not what I had been led to believe up to this point. Well, it's also, I think the, the way you're interpreting not you, but the way that the entity that passes to the next realm interprets the way these things should be. So a lot of these references, for instance, to um, places from kind of ancient Hebrew, that's not at all matching what modern Judaism views as what an afterlife would be, uh, which is something that is often not particularly discussed in a lot of kind of modern interpretations. There's a lot of ceremony regarding kind of the movement from um, life to death and reflection on death, but there's not necessarily the focus that there is a little bit more in kind of Christendom about well, what does it look like when you die? You know, what, what color are the clouds, right? That's not necessarily the focus of these things, but it could be that a particular soul, for lack of a better word, who finds themselves in this version of this part of hell does interpret that all of these words do apply, but that's because of their understanding of those terms and words. And we're going to spend a big chunk of season of mist talking about the, the history of notions about the underworld and also, uh, angels and demons it's going to be going to be a lot to do here but uh, let's move on to the next uh, the next page because uh, this scene in hell is also really something of a prologue to this issue because now we are going to head to the dreaming we're going to head to dreams palace and we are finally brent going to get to talk about lucian's library because here we are. Uh, Lucian is here. Matthew the Raven is here with him. What's going to happen in this scene in terms of the plot is that they're going to be summoned by Dream to the audience hall. That doesn't matter, though, right? What really matters is that we get uh, an image of the library and we get a description of what this library is, what it's for. And it is the library of books that have been imagined, have been dreamed, but have never been written, or, or at least have never been finished. And we get an amazing look at a shelf here, complete with 10 titles of books that don't actually exist in our world. Well, there's one caveat to that, actually. But uh, at any rate, this list makes me super giddy, Brent. Uh, but what what are the highlights of this list for you? I mean, certainly more work by Lord Dunzany uh, is exciting. 
um, the dark gods, darlings, um, sounds like some wonderful thing. Um, we do have the fun little bit. Um, and this is something that, you know, I'm sure you and Brandon, actually, I know you and Brandon have talked a lot about when you talked about Lovecraft and Elder Sign is, you know, the sneaking in the fictional book that, that, brings things in universe. So even though I have no interest in ever reading anything by Erasmus Fry, because I think my disgust with him based on what we saw of him in Calliope means that I would never be able to read a work by him. Um, nonetheless, it's, it's kind of a fun trick. Um, the conscience of Sherlock Holmes sounds like a, a, a wonderful book and Leslie Klinger in the annotated, um, the same annotations makes a note about, you know, perhaps what's being referred to there is Dr. Watson, who sometimes is referred to as the inner voice for Sherlock Holmes and sometimes is depicted even as such. So is that a book about Dr. Watson or is it about something else? Neil Gaiman though, um, which is noted, in the annotated Sandman, as well as Highbender Sandman Companion, um, noted that uh, from his perspective, the one thing that Sherlock Holmes doesn't have is a conscience. <laughs> yeah, that's really fascinating. I had not thought about it quite in in that way. My my context for this, Brent, had to be the fact that you and I have on Patreon covered one of Gaiman's Sherlock Holmes short stories, one of his uh, Sherlock Holmes pastiches. We did the the case of death and honey on Patreon, I don't know, about a year ago, I guess. And we talked on that, we talked in that episode about where in the timeline of Holmes that was coming, because Gaiman situates that really, really late. Like the First World War is something that uh, is, is the context, for, part, or at least part of the context for that story. And the end of that story has Holmes and Watson kind of coming out of retirement. Uh, at least there's a sort of an epilogue that suggests that's going to happen. And we had talked in that episode about the idea of them getting back to work, getting back to the mission of trying to right wrongs in in the world after Holmes had just re had retired from something that he had been kind of treating like a hobby and that now he was going to treat like a mission because uh, the aftermath of the First World War or the First World War itself is suggesting that the world needs some help. And hey, the First World War is the same thing that kicks off the whole context for the Sandman, right? I mean, that's it's like page one. We're in the First World War here and Sleep of the Just. And yeah, so I kind of felt like, uh, you know, although Gaiman hasn't, you know, at the time he's written this issue that he's invented this name for a Sherlock Holmes book, hasn't written that story, that Gaiman is already thinking about Holmes in, in those terms. Yeah, he, he very much is. And as I looked at this panel, Glenn, the one thing that struck me, uh, particularly in my most recent reread, where I knew we were going to discuss this, was that in many ways, it's almost as if Neil Gaiman is writing at you in that this panel reads like a crescendo of um, uh, for a stanza of music that kind of tops out for you at uh, the Lost Road. My guess is that that was just that like every volume you probably got slightly more excited until we hit that high point. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, let's go through the rest of this list, I suppose, right? So we've we've mentioned Erasmus Fry, uh, Lord Dunsany, yeah, Tolkien, the the Lost Road, which is something that we have some bits of, but hasn't been, you know, he didn't he didn't complete. Uh, yeah, we've got the Arthur Conan Doyle, and then we have G.K. Chesterton, right, Gilbert, um, and then we have James Branch Cable, who we've talked about before because uh, he's part of uh, one of the the epigrams for for Dream Country. Then we've got. Lewis Carroll, another another Alice story. This is Alice's journey behind the moon, and we have uh, Charles Dickens, uh, the return of Edwin Drood. We've got uh, P.G. Woodhouse, and then we also have Raymond Chandler, uh, a book entitled "Love Can Be Murder," and I mean, 
we have, except for actually, I think PJ Woodhouse, we have talked about every single one of these writers somewhere on the <laughs> network before, if not actually having covered, uh, you know, at least one of their stories. And and actually, I love PG Woodhouse, so you know, it's only a matter of time. But I guess m- maybe let me flip that question back around to you, Brandon, to say if you could have one, but only one of these books, which one would you pick to have? I would probably have to go with The Lost Road by Tolkien because we have some bits of that. Um, and it is, uh, noted in the same annotations that, uh, Tolkien had tried experimenting a little bit along with C.S. Lewis in, um, doing a, a different, different, um, approaches to things. And that Tolkien later wrote in a letter that they agreed they should, that he should try space travel. Uh, this being C.S. Lewis should try space travel and that I, being Tolkien, should try time travel. Um, the result was the Prolandra trilogy for C.S. Lewis and that the effort that, quote, after a few promising chapters ran dry, unfortunately, uh, for Tolkien was, um, you know, what fragments we have of The Lost Road, but that being a time travel that um, my understanding from the annotations would help connect kind of Middle Earth to more of the modern days and perhaps even some of the the, the space travel fiction that C.S. Lewis was working on. Which one would it be for you? Would it be that or would it be something else? Right. I mean, of all the people on this list, uh, only one of them has been turned into a tattoo that I have, and it is Tolkien. So uh, you you would totally expect that that would be my answer. But actually, I don't feel like I'm missing that from my life. I think, especially now with you know a little toddler and also a, a podcast network that keeps me very, very busy. And the only reading I really do is for the podcast network, that when I have time and I, I just want to read Tolkien to enjoy Tolkien, I'm just going back to either The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. In fact, uh, The Hobbit is coming up soon in the uh, stack of books that I, I read to Finch uh, at, at nap time and bedtime. But so I think that the you know one book that I would want to have here that doesn't really exist in the world is actually the Raymond Chandler. Look, mm. I, I would I would love another Raymond Chandler hard boiled detective, you know, Philip Marlowe novel uh, as a bit of um, I've got some time and uh, I, you know in twenty minutes I could read a chapter uh, about this Raymond Chandler book I'm not actually going to podcast about and just just be in this book to be in it. Uh, so that's what I want. I want Love Can Be Murder by Raymond Chandler. Any of these would be a great addition to the real world canon outside of Lucian's library. Um, I will also note that the script, according to Leslie Klinger, also includes another book, which did not make an appearance here, which maybe would really be what I'd want to see, which is Cthulhu Springtime by H.P. Lovecraft. (laughs) Oh man, what would that book be? What would that book even be? (laughs) There, he then references that the Journal of Lovecraftian Scholarship, uh, Dagon number 17, published in April uh, 87, um, had a bit from Neil Gaiman in which he kind of posits, um, but presents as if it's real, a uh, merger between Lovecraft and uh, Woodhouse writing a tale together. It includes fragments of a musical that they were working on together called Necronomicon Summer, which uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not right, a big that- fan of musicals, but I think that Necronomicon Summer is one that I potentially would 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 enjoy and see multiple times. Well, we we have not talked off mic at all about uh, what things we will do in between this volume of Sandman and the next. Though we know we will do a few things, but um, um, I think that's going on the list, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna track that down for us, and we're gonna we're gonna cover that. I don't know how long that is, even if it's only a page. We're gonna do a whole episode on that. 
another book that does not appear, um, but is in the script is uh, Lord Greystoke of Barsoom by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Oh, amazing. Yeah. One of one of Edgar Rice Burroughs' uh, Mars books, which and, and Burroughs is actually someone we have not talked about on the network. So I guess, uh, you know, put him there with, with Woodhouse. Though, as we have said, uh, we're going to correct the, we're going to correct the Woodhouse part at least uh, uh, fairly soon. Well, let's uh, let's go get to some actual plot, some actual story happening here, Brent. And I, I assume that you were playing a drinking game with yourself at home about how much time I was going to want to spend talking about the, the books in this library. And I, <laughs> I I hope I have allowed you to take a drink here while we're while we're recording. But at this point, we're going to go follow Lucian and Matthew to the audience chamber. Uh, we see Dream on his throne. Uh, this throne is surprisingly very. Uh, um, uh, Temple of Doom chic, I think, is the technical term for the the fashion, uh, the interior decorating style of this uh, this throne here. But uh, this is also the title page. But then this title page and the next three pages. Uh, really just give all of us, you know, the readers, a, a bunch of information that, you know, if we have actually been been reading this story from the beginning, we already have. Uh, so all of this scene really has the feeling of a kind of catch me up for people who are jumping on board to Sandman now, although it is also a nice refresher for those of us even who have been, been here from the beginning. You know, we get this backstory about Nada again. We get the decision that Dream made in the last issue, even. We also get the story of A Hope in Hell, right? We get this story about the animosity that now exists between Dream and Lucifer because Dream humiliated him in front of the uh, denizens of hell. But then at the end of this, we get Matthew really acting as an audience surrogate. He's got some questions. And this really works because Matthew very recently was one of us, right? He very recently was a human of our contemporary world who doesn't actually know anything about the speculative stuff that's happening here. And so we get some detail at this point that is new, some detail about Lucifer. And Dream explains that Lucifer was the creator's finest creation. He was an angel named Samael, uh, but called Lucifer, which is to say Lightbringer. Uh, We did a whole thing about that name for A Hope in Hell. But what really matters here is that Dream says that Lucifer is perhaps the most powerful being in the whole universe, besides the creator, and that he is far more powerful than Dream is. And so this is something we were talking about last episode, Brent. This totally upends my sense of the Endless as being very near the top, if not the top, of the org chart of numinous powers here in the universe. This totally upends that idea that I had. Yeah, I think that it certainly does change how the org chart lays out um, as we are suddenly have Lucifer thrust in power level um, well above Dream and perhaps above the other siblings. Also, you know, earlier on, um, when Lucian and Matthew were first summoned to the chamber, to the audience with the other Dream creatures, there's a throwaway line where Matthew's like, I didn't know he could do that. And Lucian says he is you know, in the heart of his realm of he's, you know, at his most powerful, which tells us here that then like if Lucifer is the second most powerful entity in existence anywhere, and then the idea that you're going to go to his realm where he's even all the more kind of all powerful, it really raises the stakes and ratchets it, ratchets them up, which I think is nice given the uh, relatively – I'm not going to say easy time, but I mean, Dream kind of literally does stroll out of hell last time we saw him there. Um, and so if you want to raise the stakes of he is going to hell and that is terrifying, 
you need to do some of this groundwork on that significance. I think a lot of this is also setting up nice background about Lucifer as a character who gets further uh, gets further developed and fleshed out in um, subsequent issues. Right. And, and of course, has his own TV show as, as well. Right. But yeah, I think this absolutely has to happen because I think if all we have is preludes and nocturnes to go on, I mean, Roderick Burgess is more powerful than Lucifer as far as I can tell. Right. He was able to imprison Dream, whereas um, to quote Xander Harris, Dream was able to escape Lucifer's clutches just, you know, with his mouth by talking. Right. Like, yeah. So Roderick Burgess seems more powerful even than Lucifer. So we need we need this information. We need to have dreams say this explicitly. And I think that is something that we actually did not talk about when we were doing the audio adaptation. But actually, in A Hope in Hell, there in the audio, Gaiman as narrator gives us information that is not present in that issue to let us know that Dream really is of less power than Lucifer. But it's not in the issue. Uh, but it's clear that this is something that Gaiman, you know, having another chance to introduce an audience to Lucifer and to Hell, wants to really clarify about their relationship uh, and their and their their various spots on the org chart. I mean, we don't get thought balloons for Dream. So in the issue, when he Hope and Hell, when he goes there, there is a panel or two where we're showing, you know, during the the, the contest of him looking behind the bar. And as a reader, I'm just interpreting that to be like, oh, well, here's just kind of a fun artistic shot of what, you know, the bottles of liquor look like in a bar in hell, which good by me. Glad to see. Please show more. <laughs> but in the audio adaptation, we get the advantage of, of, of learning that that's that uh, Morpheus's eyes were kind of flitting about those bottles as he was stretching and trying to reach us to even how to best that contest where it's not even him facing Lucifer directly. It's him facing some, you know, uh, we'll say minor demon, but not member of the triumvirate that at the time was ruling hell. And yet he's, you know, still kind of stressing himself out a little bit, trying to like reach for how does he take this next step? And it's not a well-articulated, he's thought it out, you know, Batman style, 10,000, you know, steps ahead of things. And he's already got the kryptonite ring like hidden away <laughs> in the Batcave. It's, it's legitimately like, no, I'm in Lucifer's realm. I'm kind of, I'm underpowered. I'm terrified to be here. Um, but yeah, I mean, particularly now that he's, he has his ruby back. Well, it's been destroyed, but he's got the power that was within it. He has his helm back. Why should he not feel all the more powerful? Because where he first went to hell, he's like, I only have the sand. I'm concerned that's not enough. And we're like, well, why? You know, he did fine last time and now he's got all that extra power back. So really raising the stakes here, I think kind of is an essential thing for the terror that he is going to experience um, throughout the rest of this issue and going into at least the next. And just in terms of the the story arc from you know the entirety of the Sandman, part of what is happening here is that the fear about going back to hell is in part at least the result of what Dream did the last time he was there, right? So when he shows up at hell in A Hope in Hell, he doesn't have that fear because he has not actually yet humiliated Lucifer. It's clear that at you know at that point in their relationship there is some kind of tension, but it's not this level of tension, right? So you know, Gaiman is sort of doing both things here, right? He's reminding us that uh, Dream 
acted perhaps short-sightedly last time he was interacting with Lucifer, but then also he's he's wanting to really clarify some of these issues about about power, about uh, you know the, the numinous beings in this uh, in this speculative world. I, I, I want to talk too about the biography that Gaiman is is elaborating here for Lucifer. We got a lot of that in A Hope in Hell, uh, but he also gives him now this name Samael which is not a name that appears in in either half of the the Bible the the Old Testament or the New Testament. Uh this is a a name that appears in the the book of Enoch that was um I'm simplifying this here there's actually a huge textual history about the book of Enoch but the book of Enoch is roughly from around 200 BC and in this text Samael is one fallen angel, but he's not the leader. So he's not actually equated with the character of Lucifer at that point. But then in another book, the book of uh, Third Baruch, this is written uh, a few centuries later. This is from around roughly, again, this is a simplification, but roughly 150 AD, where the name Samael is given to uh, a figure who actually planted the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, and then is also the figure who sends the serpent to Eve to uh, get her to eat the fruit of that tree. It's a kind of uh, elaboration of the story that we get in Genesis. And then finally, a few centuries after that, in the early Middle Ages, uh, developments in Jewish thinking here in early medieval Judaism, this figure, this name, Samael, is finally equated with or identified with Satan. Uh, and Satan here in Hebrew meaning accuser. Uh, and it's it's someone who battles for souls and explicitly battles for souls against the archangel Michael. And this figure then also is someone who opposed the creation of humanity. Uh, again, sort of you know fleshing out material that we get in Genesis, though none of these figures actually appear you know in the creation story. Uh, here, this is all being kind of inserted into that tradition. And then what what Gaiman is now doing centuries and centuries later, later, really a millennium and a half later, uh, is further bringing the name Lucifer into this equation. Right, Lucifer and Satan are already. Um, equated uh, by the time Gaiman is here on the scene. I think everybody is well aware uh, of that, but then bringing Samael into that here as well. And just doing this thing that Gaiman loves to do, which is this, this syncretic move of saying, yes, we've got all of these names that go with figures who are clearly very similar and, and fulfill similar functions in similar stories. Let's just say that they are all aspects of or versions of, variations of the same thing. And so that's something he's doing here as well. Yeah, and Leslie Klinger notes that the name um, Samael uh, literally translates, based on his research, into Venom of God, and that a lot of scholars um, connect the etymology um, as cementing it as a connection with the Angel of Death. But he also notes that the name may be derived from the Syriad god um, Shamal. He also, Leslie Klinger, we, we mentioned, we kind of jumped over this bit earlier where there's a discussion um, he has about the word demon um, connected with this issue in which in kind of Judeo-Christian practice, you know, demons were not necessarily good or ill. There were kind of two flavors of them. There were ones that meant well and ones that did not. Um, and then that kind of has evolved over time where typically you're thinking more about demons being things that are meaning ill and angels being things that are meaning good. Um, but that he noted that in a lot of cases – um, over time, uh, religious figures have 
tied other religions into like, you know, the pantheon in some ways by just saying, oh, well, that is a demon for good or ill that is within this construct of particularly like a Judeo-Christian kind of construct of mythology, which is kind of what Neil is doing in some ways too, where he is then layering on top of that his own, the endless on top of the construct, and then being able to plug in multiple names for a similar place um, or um, having that, you know, you can coexist, that you can have, you know, multiple you know, just even gods of thunder or lords of the underworld or whatever that you can have, you know, that maybe in theory there is a, some with, there is a Hades and there is also a Lucifer and that these can coexist in a meaningful way, right? And this is really just the tip of the iceberg here for angelology and demonology that we were going to be doing here for Season of Mist. I mean, just there's going to be a lot to say. And I'm actually really taken in by the extent of, of Gaiman's conception of all of this, actually. And we are also, I think, going to get a chance to talk about the way that uh, thinkers in uh, late antique Judaism, uh, late antique Christianity, or, or what we might call early Christianity, and then also early Islam are are dealing with paganism as well. Because I think that Gaiman actually draws on a lot of the intellectual constructs of those figures. We are eventually also going to get to say the name Thomas Aquinas an awful lot, uh, but that is for uh, for issues in the future. So I will uh, I'll hold my tongue there. But we do need to talk about something else that we get in this scene before we leave it, which is the idea that if dream dies, he will actually be replaced. And in fact, what he says is, another aspect of dream will fill my shoes. And we have not, I don't think, Brent, had this idea before. Yeah, we haven't had that before. So, you know, we were introduced last issue to delirium and we were told that delirium had been delight, but we don't. So we get the idea that if something particularly traumatic happens, then maybe an endless can change into something else, but we don't get this idea that if one of them ceases to be, that it will be replaced. Because we get, you know, we have also in the last issue, we had death threatened desire. Um, so if death would have ended desire there at the family meeting, then would another aspect of desire have become desire? Seemingly the answer would be yes. And I think it's kind of a nice setup here where to keep kind of the internal consistency of what we have so far, you know, he notes that it'd be far more difficult if he is not destroyed and if instead he's imprisoned again. Um, but he's made some eventualities if that were to happen. So, I mean, clearly with the way the panel is set up where he talks about how if he's destroyed and he's looking kind of downcast and we see his eyelid closed, this seems to be something that he is concerned could happen, which again, raising the stakes, but also we're not used to necessarily seeing Dream feeling threatened in this way. And it also raises the question of, you know, how long has this aspect of dream been around? I, I think we actually can answer that. I do think that this aspect of dream is the original aspect of dream based on things that we get in Hope and Hell, where he talks about being present when Lucifer fell from heaven and and was you know cast down to the domain of, of hell. He was present for that. So that does suggest that this aspect of dream is perhaps the original aspect of dream, but maybe that's not true for destiny, death, desire, despair, at least one of them. We don't know at this point, but it's interesting to think about. But then yeah, you also make a great point here too, Brent, which is that this 
does elaborate on something we got last time about the transformation of delight to delirium that that does that 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 clearly whatever that was like whatever caused that did not trigger the ushering in of another aspect of delight so the function of delight has been abandoned not just by the persona that was fulfilling that function but seemingly by the nature of reality itself and that's cool and terrifying the other thing that I think is interesting, and you know, it's it's partially because you didn't want to just have this be pages of just text, um, but we have Dream giving the speech to all the assembled denizens of his realm. Is this something, Glenn, that Dream would have done, you know, back in issue three or four, or do we see him just as we see him, and we'll talk about this a little bit later when he again has an interaction with Hob, but. Is he doing this because it's a requirement for him as sovereign of these lands to do this? Or is he doing this because he is maybe slightly less aloof than he was before? And so it's important that he be honest with the loyal subjects such as Lucian who did not leave, right? Um, and kept the realm going as best they could that he lets them know and is upfront about it. I think that mainly it's just a mechanic by which we can have a character monologue. But still, does this reveal anything to you about Dream's, you know, kind of character arc and personality at this point? I, I think this is absolutely a part of Dream's character arc. I think he has been imprisoned for nearly a century. His realm suffered for that. Uh, but then so also did our world, right? Our realm suffered from that. And this was a real neglect of his duties. I mean, against his will, right? But the world, the universe suffered for his absence. And so now he's trying to take steps to prevent that from happening again. And so, you know, so yeah, I totally think that he would never have made this type of speech before. Possibly he has since getting back, but I think this is only the sort of thing that uh, he would do since having been in prison. This is post-imprisonment dream here uh, doing this, doing this sort of thing where he's thinking about actually where he where he's actually decided to equip his servants with like the most information they need to carry on in his absence to carry on his functions without him uh, it's still super condescending but 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 less so than it was uh, 80 82 years ago i guess but of course dream is still dream and he still very much believes in uh propriety and uh taking specific steps so um matthew says at least you'll have the element of surprise and he says no i sent an envoy uh which <laughs> then um we get the transition to uh a lucifer being approached by a couple of demons um with uh the envoy in tow and we have see that kane was who dream sent Right. And one of the things that we should recall from uh, Hope and Hell is that there actually was some some drama there at the gates, right? Because Dream didn't have all his formal accoutrements with him, right? So it's very clear that there are, you know, rules here about how these uh, numinous figures, these powerful figures in the cosmos are are meant to get along with each other. There's like a robust uh, system of diplomatics, <laughs> you know, here in the numinous part of this world. And now, you know, Dream is actually equipped to follow those rules. And so he's going to do that. And that includes sending an envoy ahead of you with, uh, with a message, you know, announcing your impending arrival. Uh, and 
we're going to get some more expansion of the you know, role of the biblical figures in this story, because that envoy here in this case is Cain. And the reason that Dream chose Cain, of all the people who live in the dreaming, is because of the special curse that God laid on Cain in chapter 4 of Genesis, uh, a curse that anyone who kills Cain will be punished sevenfold. And so this means that you know, even if Lucifer really, really wanted to kill Cain, he would be aware that there are consequences here. There would be real stakes for that, right? That this then essentially gives Cain a type of immunity, or at least, you know, like a really good chance of, of, of having immunity from Lucifer's wrath. And that's really fun. That's a really great detail. But I think what is even funner here is that Gaiman has Lucifer tell Cain about a weird group of Gnostics who were part of the bizarre quilt of uh, early Christianity. These people were called the Cainites. And unlike the Unforgiven who worshiped despair that we talked about in the last issue, these are actually real people. We we know about them from the book uh, Against Heresies by the second century Bishop of Lyon. This is a, uh, a figure named, a person named uh, Irenaeus. This is actually a book that is usually right behind my head as we record, Brent, because Sometimes I get to teach early Christianity, and it, well, that just happens to be the bookshelf that has those uh, those texts on them. But uh, what I find most interesting here is that Lucifer jokes that the same percentage of Cainites came to hell to be punished when they died as he gets from the general population, even though those people had named themselves after the first murderer. They use the gospel of Judas as their primary scripture, and they actually think that God is evil and not actually God. This is something that is amusing to Lucifer. He thinks this is funny. But I think there is also something revealed here about the way that this world functions, because it suggests that even though Gaiman is you know, very much crafting a fantasy world by taking uh, Jewish scripture and Jewish apocrypha very seriously. I'm not so sure about how strictly the Ten Commandments are actually being enforced by anybody here. Yeah, and I think that it goes back to some of our conversations before with death is you go to different places and they seem to be – and we'll get a little bit more on this as we go – but seem to be based more on what you might expect there to be unless that there is a objective universal set of scales that is weathering that is you know weighing your heart against a feather it could be that there is a set of scales but what is constituting your heart and what is constituting the feather are things that perhaps are very much subject to change depending on the individual right right yeah absolutely because if it is actually the case that you have to follow the rules, right? That that what scripture is, or at least a part of what scripture is, is an explanation, a list, a description, and an explanation of what the rules are. And the idea is that violating them will lead to something punitive, right? If if, if that is true, then actually 100% of the Cainites would have to be here for violating the whole, you know, I, I am your God and you will have no other gods before me business <laughs> that is like the first of, of commandments. And, and we do talk about the Ten Commandments as a thing, but actually there are like 600 commandments <laughs> in, in, in scripture. And uh, so, you know, it is a lot of rules to follow, but it's clear that that's not what is getting people into hell here, right? This notion as, as you know, you've described it here, Brent, this notion of how you get to hell is definitely not biblical. It is something that is from our, you know, contemporary, uh, what we might even call 
you know, post-Christian or possibly even just post-religious understanding of of hell as kind of a, a a place that you go to based on whether or not you've been mostly good or mostly bad, not whether or not you have followed a set of explicit and specific commandments. But I was really reminded here, actually, of a line that we we joked about uh, recently when we covered the short story chivalry. Um, in fact, I read the line in that in that episode because I love it so much. I want to read it again here because I think it's really germane. Uh, Gaiman writes in that story, uh, he says, her local church was St. James the Less, which was a little more, don't think of this as a church. Think of it as a place where like-minded friends hang out and are joyful than Mrs. Whitaker felt entirely comfortable with. The theology here, the theology of hell is exactly that type of theology. The don't think of this as a church type of, of theology. It's this very kind of new agey understanding of, of, of spirituality rather than a kind of commandments-based uh, understanding of, of spirituality or understanding of religion. And it's not clear to me at this point, Glenn, whether it's that people who on the balance are kind of in a global humanist way good are ending up in a good place and those who are, you know, bad or in a bad place, or if it's that we see a lot of occasions in throughout Sandman where rules are very important. So it could be that each person sets up with their own set of rules. And if they behaved well based on the standards that they themselves bring, they get what their standards say they get if they do well. And if the standards say they did bad. So you might, you might show up with your own set of scales even. Um, <laughs> so you show up, you've got your own set of scales, you've got your own heart, you've got your own feather, and then those determine where you go. And in that way, you're almost worse off in a way if you have too rigid of a, of a um, doctrine that you were trying to follow that you constantly are failing to follow. Um, it might be better to have a more permissive worldview, perhaps. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mrs. Whitaker's uh, standard here is going to be a lot more difficult to meet than the uh, the the rector or vicar of uh, St. James yeah. the Less, who, if I recall correctly, was also someone who played a lot of acoustic guitar and uh, you know was just generally a nice person. Yeah. I I think that's exactly right, Brent. I think that's exactly what's what's happening here. This is a theme that, or maybe, well, theme maybe isn't quite right, but it's a motif that we're going to see again and again uh, in in the game. And I mean, I think this is something also we'll, you know, I don't know, a decade or so from now, if we do American Gods, we'll, we'll talk about there as well. So we, we leave Lucifer uh, a very happy, almost giddy looking face uh, that he's got in the panel um, saying that it's wonderful. Isn't that wonderful that uh, Sandman is returning to hell? Yeah, uh, and uh, I think I think it means it is not wonderful. At least yeah. not if you're not if you're dream. Right? When the Just devil to... smiles. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great panel, and this is absolutely the place where narratively you want to break that scene. Right? This is uh, it's not quite a, a cliffhanger, right? But it does pause that moment. It gives us a feeling of suspense, right? Because we know that Lucifer is going to now be planning something. For dreams arrival, and now we want to know what it is. So this is just the you know, textbook perfect way to tell this story. Well, uh, now it's time for something completely different, Brent, and uh, we just switch gears entirely here. Actually, kind of a surprising page turn. We go from the devil smiling to a newborn in a in a bassinet. And back in the doll's house, we promised you and I promised Brent that we were not done yet with Hippolyta Hall and her baby and. 
Here they are. And, and just a refresher, Hippolyta Hall was the wife of Hector Hall, whom Brute and Glob had turned into uh, their own little pet Sandman in their little micro-dreaming that was inside of uh, Jed's mind. And Hippolyta was pregnant while they were in there. She was pregnant for years without ever giving birth. And at the end of that part of the story, Dream tells Hippolyta that someday he's going to come for her baby. And it looks like that day is now. Uh, it, it, it isn't. It, it turns out it's actually not. But Dream is standing alone with the baby in the baby's room. Uh, the baby's here in this little bassinet. And this is, I mean, at best, it's creepy, right? Just to see this <laughs> this dark, shadowy, trench-coated figure standing alone in the room like this. But it is menacing. And well, my heart skipped a beat here, even though, you know, I, I've been on this journey before. My heart skipped a beat. But it does turn out that Dream is here simply because he wanted to see the baby before he goes to hell. Because, again, he's thinking that he might be in prison there. He might be stuck there for a long time, or he might die. And this baby is important because it gestated in Dreams for so long. But that is actually all that Dream's going to say about this right now. Uh, except that there is also this little gag here about how Hippolyta has not yet named the baby. And Dream tells her that his name is Daniel. Uh, and clearly, and, and, and Dream, in fact, promises this, right? There, there is more to come with this child. Not going to happen in this volume. But uh, I just wonder if you know this name means anything or suggests anything to you, Brent. Because that really seems to be like what this scene is here for, is for us to get this name as if it's a bit of foreshadowing somehow. Yeah, um, and in both Highbender Sandman Companion and Leslie Klinger's uh, Annotated Sandman, um, they both note in an interview that Neil Gaiman has said that the name Daniel is connected in the Bible uh, as someone who has visions and interprets dreams. Um, and that is intentionally the reason why the, the child is named Daniel, um, is because of the connection with the interpretation of, of dreams. And there's a fun little bit uh, when Lita is talking about the ideas she had for names. For those of you who are Wonder Woman fans, just to get, again as a throwback, um, Hippolyta's father in DC continuity is Steve Trevor because um, her mother is Wonder Woman from the Golden Age. So that's the reason why she said she was thinking about Steve after her father uh, or Hector after uh, his father. But yeah, ultimately, Daniel is the name that goes with. And Neil did select that because of the connection to the biblical um, name and the interpreter of dreams. Yeah, this is the Daniel of the, the book of Daniel. This is a, a second century BC text, though the story is about the events in the sixth century BC. It's written in the second century BC, which actually makes it largely or, or roughly contemporary to the, the book of Enoch that I brought up earlier when we were talking about Samael. But yeah, that's, you know, I've, I've read the, the book of Daniel. I mean, I read it again, you know, last night for this issue, but actually I've read it again also uh, for podcasting about Gene Wolfe, who also invokes Daniel. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I don't have anything more specific than that at this point. Like there wasn't any bit of real foreshadowing that I could see other than that the name is emphasizing that this child has, is going to have a special relationship with dreams, the dreaming dream himself in some way. But yeah, I didn't, didn't, get a glimpse, get a hint of like what specific plot points might be coming in the future here. But it's a great name. It's a perfect name for this baby. And I will mention that Highbender in his interview in The Salmon Companion with Neil Gaiman does mention Neil's initial response for why is the baby named Daniel is uh, it begins with a D for start and then he laughs. Ah. Um, so, um, <laughs> But then he goes on to say it connects to the Daniel in the Bible who has visions and interprets dreams. 
Well, uh, well, that's a bit of foreshadowing for sure. <laughs> bit. There's also, um, and I'm not going to go into the details here, uh, but I will share with anyone who wants to look it up either in Highbender's Sandman Companion or Leslie Klinger's Annotated Sandman Volume 2. There's some discussion about continuity being off here because the gestation period of when Hippolyta would have given birth relative to the dates that we are later presented in a subsequent issue of Sandman for when seasons of Mysticers means that things are off by about three months in the continuity. And apparently that is one of the few times uh, in the course of the 75 issue run of Sandman when uh, continuity and chronology doesn't quite make sense. Uh, and in cases, both cases, um, both Klinger and Bender note that uh, Neil's response is, yep, uh, I don't have a good response for that. It just <laughs> is a thing that happened, and uh, I don't understand it either, which is a, a great Neil response. It's not like I made a mistake. It's that there are probably reasons, but I don't know what those reasons are. <laughs> yeah, well, that'll be fun. I, I, I hadn't. I don't think I ever noticed that, and if but if I did, I certainly had forgotten it. But it'll be fun when we get there. Can you give us a sense? You don't don't have to tell us anything about what's going on, but like what issue number <laughs> does that happen in? It is somewhere later in seasons of mist, though, where I believe the reference is made that at that point it is August, or uh, sorry, December, um, and so the relationship between then, if you're looking at the calendar from previously when we get a month um, in Sandman terms. Of, of oh, I see. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, okay. Well, it won't be that far in the future. I thought it was going to be about six years in the future where we're going to have that conversation. But no, it'll be the wrap-up episode for Season of Mist. So awesome. Excellent. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to that. Well, Dream has one more farewell to make before he is going to travel to hell, right? Before he goes and puts himself into jeopardy by putting himself into Lucifer's hands. And this is someone else we met in the doll's house. It's Hob Gadling, the man who lives forever, a man whom we met in Men of Good Fortune. This is, at least for me anyway, it was a really touching scene. Uh, we see that Dream really does regard Hob as his friend. Uh, Dream goes to visit Hob in Hob's own dream. We see Dream actually travel through some other dreams to, to get there, and that's pretty fun. But Dream brings Hob uh, you know, a bottle of very good wine. Actually, I wondered if uh, Klinger has anything to say about this, the specificity of this wine here. But uh, then they just chat a little bit, and Hob makes a toast that is really ominous sounding. I mean, it's more ominous than naming this baby Daniel. Uh, Here's what he says. To absent friends, lost loves, old gods, and the season of mists. And may each and every one of us always give the devil his due. And some of that, I think, makes sense to us already, right? We're going to hell to see the devil, not as a lost love. Um, Well, I don't know. Lost love might not really be the way I would phrase it. But if we're being charitable to dream, we can put Nada perhaps in the category of lost love. But I think the rest of this won't really make sense until we get into later episodes. But the one thing that I really want to talk about in this scene, Brent, is the, the bottle of wine. Because... It is a dream bottle of wine, right? This is all happening in a dream. But the last panel of this scene is Hob waking up and seeing the bottle on his nightstand, right? So just, you know, how does that work, right? That's the question. Well, we've seen before where dream has created things um, that, you know, uh, out of himself, at least the ruby and the helm and the pouch of sand. Um, are all things created out of himself and or parts of the dreaming and they yet manifest as material objects in the world. So it seems to be something that uh, perhaps only dream can do. 
but it's it's not entirely clear and I'm flashing back to when Dream and John Constantine are headed to go to try to recover the pouch and all the things going on in that house. Um, and those are because of dreams that are escaped to the real world. And in some ways, all of those are kind of things that dream has either perhaps indirectly created, but nonetheless kind of created that are able to manifest elsewhere. Uh, we don't know the extent to which he can, you know, remake reality if he wanted to. Um, although now that I say those words out loud, I'm reminded of a dream of a thousand cats with the idea that <laughs> if enough cats were to dream the same dream, it would maybe remake reality. So perhaps that is just a, you know, massive magnification of the relatively then comparatively minor ability to have a bottle of wine from someone's dream manifest uh, in the real world and be left over at least for a time. Right. If we're we're thinking about dreams domain his his realm his fear here as including you know the imagination right the uh, making up of things uh, telling stories right and making up stories that then become real in, in in the world right but that are are wholly invented and yeah i think the idea of yeah materializing a bottle of wine like this makes perfect sense i wonder though you know going back to just thinking specifically about the ruby when dream does this when he creates things that are going to manifest materially in the world for us, does he replenish that power or does that power go away? And I, I think, you know, why that would matter here is that, you know, he's about to go put himself in serious business jeopardy, but he's expending, you know, probably a very tiny fraction, but still nonetheless, perhaps expending in absolute terms, some bit of his power on a present for Hob. I think that's an excellent point, Glenn, in that even if he doesn't have to expend any power himself, we clearly find moments where Dream is kind of stealing himself and actively not doing things. So the fact that he is taking the effort even to visit Hob is in itself him perhaps not being as well prepared as he could have been if he instead were, you know, to be just resting somewhere or hitting the books in some ways, right? So he clearly has made a decision, um, and this does then track with what we saw in Men of Good Fortune of how he does regard Hop now, um, which, you know, makes their friendship, uh, you know, quite beautiful in its own way. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty big deal. Uh, you know, this is not something that Dream before the imprisonment would have done. I think we can say that safely. And so, yeah, just like the audience, right? Just like the the monologue, right? This is another indication that Dream has changed. He's been profoundly affected by that experience. It also suggests what Dream is anticipating about being imprisoned, right? That one of the things he's anticipating is loneliness. And so he's going to take a few minutes with his best friend in the whole world, or at least best friend who's not his sister, before he goes and puts himself in that position. And that, that's a real that's a real tell about what matters to him at this point. Well, and if he hadn't just had the interaction that he had with his sister, perhaps that's whose company he would have sought more so, maybe not. But, um, you know, he, he's, he, he's had his interactions with his family. He is quite, knows quite sure what she thinks he should do. Um, and so him... Uh, interacting with her more at this point is not particularly useful. So uh, Leslie Klinger does note um, that when we encounter Hobbes' dream, it's a reference to a 1594 play by Robert Greene called Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay. Reportedly in it, Roger 
uh, bacon made a head of brass. It had the f- power, uh, it had the power to speak and was expected to foretell the future. Bacon went to sleep, leaving it to the care of his apprentice to wake him should it say or do anything. Um, while he slept, the head spoke first saying, time is. Um, and then, um, and this is also cobbled together from high benders discussing a similar story. So I'm kind of kludging these two sources together. But uh, the story is that the uh, head said time is, and that the servant was too scared to rouse his master. So he waited. And then the head then spoke a second time and said, after a long pause, time was, and then again, the servant waited. And then uh, it said time is past. Um, and after its final pronouncement, the head fell to the floor, broke and never spoke again. And this is also referenced then uh, by Lord Byron in 1819 um, in uh, Don Juan, uh, in Canto 1, 1, 1, 117, uh, which says, quote, Now, like Friar Bacon's brazen head, I've spoken. Time is, time was, time is past. Yeah, this is really fantastic. Uh, this is completely contemporary with A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is probably 1595 or 1596. Uh, again, we, we spent a long time talking about that when we covered that story, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's like exactly that same moment, all part of this the same the same moment in the history of of theater and in English literature. And and this also I think relates back to things we were talking about with Trying to trying to understand destiny, right? In the last episode, and thinking about destiny less as actually destiny, and perhaps more as time. To have this this line here about the passage of time, uh, and you know how we mark that is that real? Is it is it you know a, a illusory in some way? This is certainly fodder for for trying to understand that you know the different functions of the universe as Gaiman is uh, is conceiving them. And at this point in the Salmon Companion by High Bender during the interview. Uh, Highbender asks Neil Gaiman, is Hobbes' name actually a reflection also of the devil, given that it's, you know, could be short for Hobgoblin? Um, and Neil says, well, that is a coincidence, but no, he was just looking for something that is an anachronism, uh, that is no longer in usage and noted, which I think we might have when we originally talked about Hobbes, that Hobbes had been a shortening along with Rob or, um, or Bob for Robert in the past. Um, so it's just a coincidence there. Meanwhile, I'll note regarding the wine bottle that Leslie Klinger shares with us that uh, he was able to dig up that while there are no tasting notes available regarding the 1825 vintage of uh, the Chateau Lafitte, um, there is a note in Michael Broadbent's new great vintage wine book from 1991 that gave five stars or sorry, there's no tasting notes for the 28 version, which is the one in the comic, that there is tasting notes for the 25 version, which got five stars in uh, the New Great Vintage Wine Book from 1991. And a, another source uh, recorded that it was a five-franc price for the original bottling of the 19. 19- or the 1825. So we don't know what the price of the 1828 was, but similarly, probably five franc at the time. Not sure what that means to any of us, um, but uh, there we have it. So uh, this particular vintage seems to have just been one that Neil just picked because it sounded like something that would be expensive, (laughs) but didn't actually make it something that someone could actually look up what it was, which in some ways actually makes it in my mind all the more magical because it's just like perhaps that this was a a particular vintage that maybe there never really was even a bottle at all of that time, or if there was, it was very limited in supply. Um, And so perhaps dream similar to conjuring up 
similar to the library having stories that never really were written, perhaps this is a bottle of wine that never really was ever vintnered. Well, I think Gaiman missed a real opportunity here to make it a uh, a bottle of uh, Chateau Picard, but uh, <laughs> which I, though he actually, I, I think this is actually very fun. He he could not have that hadn't been invented in TNG yet, but it was actually being invented in a script for TNG that was probably being written at the exact same second as as Gaiman was writing this script. Uh, that's uh, Chateau Picard. I think shows up for the first time in the TNG episode, the Star Trek: The Next Generation episode, Family, which aired in October of 1990. Uh, you know, and this is the cover date, January 1991. So this would have been what on the shelves in November of 1990 or so then. So, you know, yeah. a few months previously, both of those things were, both of these bottles of wine were being invented at the, at the same time. But something that is happening here with this date, you know, just picking any date here before um, 1850 means that you're referring to um, not just like a fancy old bottle of wine, but like literally a a type of wine that could no longer be produced because uh, in the 1850s, there was uh, what's commonly referred to as the great French wine blight, where just like the grape crops suffered um, some kind of a disease, a type of blight, and they really all died. And so all of the French wine and also brandy that is made um, from about the 1870s on is from different grapes, grapes that had to be reimported to, to, to France because the you know, traditional uh, medieval and early modern French wine and French brandy, uh, the, those grapes largely uh, largely died. So this then is something that just like you could not have anything like this in the real world once these bottles are are, are 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 all consumed, and I actually don't know how many bottles of wine from before that blight are actually still in existence. Well, that's a lot more on French grapes than I anticipated talking about here in this issue, Brent, but uh, we're near the end. We've actually only got two more scenes to go before this issue closes out, and I actually think that we can probably recap them together and then pause and talk about them. And uh, the first is in hell. Lucifer's with Cain, and he tells Cain that uh, he really, really looks down on the demons who live here. He calls them gnats. Uh, he's tired of their constant attempts to usurp him, which they really ought to know are never going to succeed. And he also says that there's only one person in the whole universe who is superior to him, and uh, they're not on speaking terms anymore. And here, Lucifer quotes Milton's, the, the famous line about how it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. But then Lucifer says, you know, Milton was blind. And I have the sense here that Lucifer, in this moment, and maybe even earlier in the issue, is expressing some bit of regret for his rebellion. But when he sends Cain back to dream, he, he really turns his attention here to speaking to the inhabitants of hell. And he gives a really rousing speech about how dream is coming here and how everyone in hell will remember this day forever. And so, you know, this episode more or less closes out here with it looking like there is going to be a fight, like a, you know, a real serious business, epic fight. And then the final scene here is Cain back in Dream's palace. He's really rattled by his encounter with Lucifer. And we get Lucian begging Dream not to go to hell. But Dream puts on his helm and he says goodbye. But before he leaves, he also says, sometimes we can choose the path we follow. Sometimes our choices are made for us. And sometimes we have no choice at all. And so... Yeah, I guess, Brent, maybe this is the answer to the question that I had about 
the existence of free will that we were talking about in the last episode, right? The, the answer to whether or not there is free will in this speculative world is sometimes. And that's how the issue ends. And it very much ratchets up the uh, the action and your desire to not have to wait a full month for the next issue. Uh, and as you had mentioned, um, when Lucifer is um, flying over the plains of hell and holding Cain uh, by his hair, which seems very painful, he mentions that there's recently one of the minor demons, some little yellow rhymer thought to declare himself a king of hell to usurp the triumvirate. It came to nothing. These things never do. So that's actually a reference um, that Neil is making kind of as a, as a slight nod to continuity. Again, he didn't want to acknowledge any of this continuity that was going on. But um, the same time that this issue was running, the first and second issues of uh, Demon – uh, were running. Demon focused on um, Etrigan, who we saw in Hope and Hell, the rhyming demon with the yellow skin and the blue cloak and the red uh, shirt, who is bound to Jason Blood, who is Merlin's brother. And anyways, he's a fun character, which I believe we talked about a little bit back then, but he had his own standalone comic. And briefly in the first issue or two, he does uh, form a coalition and kind of overthrow the rulers of Hell, and he declares himself the ruler of it. And then I think he spends the next few issues is just doing stuff on Earth and it's all forgotten. Right. So is that what happened to Azazel and Beelzebub, who just, you know, are not appearing in this film? Yeah, it it's not said anywhere specifically that I could find, and I don't recall if I ever read Demon 1 and 2, but I, I don't know if they go specific as to identify who gets overthrown. But Hell with continuity, it, the continuity of hell is always a very confusing place. And I believe High Bender makes reference to this too. Um, in talking to Neil Gaiman is that sometimes, you know, we still have actually for quite a while, I think in the Hellblazer comics, there is still a triumvirate in hell. Um, but Satan is a figure who is different from Lucifer, um, because it is after some of things that occur with Lucifer. Um, and yet, in some cases, it's just like, nope, Lucifer is clearly the top of the pecking order as we have here, and there's not really the triumvirate anymore. It's just that this is Lucifer's domain. And so I think that, you know, it's kind of hand-waved away as to what happened to the triumvirate, at least at this point. But also, this is just some kind of hand-waving away about, like, you know, you can declare a thing, but it doesn't make you a thing. Which somewhat matches how sometimes Neil has dealt with other occurrences of his characters. I believe we mentioned at one point how um, the character of Death makes an appearance in an issue of Captain Adam. Um, and Neil apparently was not particularly happy with how that was depicted. Um, and so he kind of hand waves that away as not actually being within the continuity of what he thinks of his things. So, um, which is just... You know, I think it's the fun of being a fan of comic books as well uh, for Neil in that uh, not only as writer can he pick and choose what is in his continuity, but uh, maybe even more than him, we can pick and choose what we decide to be continuity. <laughs> so for perhaps for this podcast, Glenn, unless we see other evidence, we will assume that Etrigan got rid of the triumvirate, but that at some point off panel, Lucifer reasserted himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess we I guess we have to. So yeah, Brent, that does bring us to the end of this issue. And and as you say, uh, I think clearly uh, excited for more, though we also will have to wait a month because that's how we do it here on the show. But we're not yet done with this episode. We still need to talk about the cover. We'll talk about not so much the title, but we'll talk about the little uh, Dickensian summary of the, of the issue, and then we'll pick some favorite panels. So yeah, we'll start with the cover. And there is 
a lot of text on this cover that I hope we can talk about. But but first, let's just describe the image for people who haven't seen it. There's the face of a person who's actually looking at us, facing us, but this person's eyes are all white. And I imagine that, I assume that this is Lucifer. Is that also your interpretation of this, Brent? I was uncertain at first, but um, looking at the dust covers, um, which collects all of the Dave Kimikin's covers and has a little bit of information about each one. We Neil Gaiman's comment on, on this cover was, I forget why Nada was on the cover of this chapter, probably because she wasn't inside, which then I believe High Bender mentions uh, that she not during an interview with him, so we didn't get a reaction to it, that she is inside. She does appear in one panel, um, which is a kind of strange panel. So that apparently is supposed to be Nada who is on the cover, um, who is perhaps, you know, just sitting there trying to suffer in silence in her imprisonment. Yeah, it's a beautiful cover. I, I, yeah, I guess I just assumed, you know, if you have eyes that don't look right, that you're numinous. And the numinous person in this story, you know, right, is who's not dream is uh, is Lucifer. So yeah, I, I really jumped to a conclusion there. But uh, yeah, I, I, you can totally see where that is supposed to be Nada. Although, yeah, that is kind of a strange choice to put her... You know, you know, although appearing in one panel, not named, and certainly not, you know, an agentive character in this uh, in this issue. So that's an interesting choice on its own. I'm also really, really interested in the text that we get here. There are three or five different bits of text that appear on the cover. They're in Latin and German, and honestly, I just couldn't see any of it well enough, even with like a bright light and a magnifying glass, to try to figure out what it is. I expect that at least one of the Latin text is from Christian scripture, and I wonder, Brent, if you were able to see what any of this is more clearly than I could, or you know, just have some information from you know one of the one of the books that you've got, one of the reference books you've got. I sadly do not. Um, it's it's not, as you said, it, it appears as someone who is not literate in either Latin nor German, um, it appeared to be uh, Latin or German or something similar, and therefore I was hopelessly lost almost immediately. Um, so I do not know what the source of that is. Um, so it might just be that it was given, you know, that we have no comment in the dust covers on this from Neil or from David Kean. It may just be that it was interesting fonts or text that he had available in block form um, using his mixed media approach. Perhaps he just decided to stamp it and layer it in and it may not actually be connected with anything going on. We have a lot more of that, I think, in these uh, seasons of missed covers, which we talked about last time, um, where it's just kind of more impressions and less the collection of specific items that are then found in the issue the way that we had in some of the earlier issues. These blocks of text are they're they're printed right they're not uh, they're not handwritten these are printing and you can tell by the um, nature of of the German text but but actually also you can tell from uh, probably the largest bit of Latin that I can see clearly that these are coming from what are probably nineteenth century. Uh, books that, yeah, I guess Dave McKean just had kind of around somehow, may have even, you know, just found at a, I don't know, a library sale or something like that and just picked up and uh, and used excerpts of them in, in this way without a whole lot of um, uh, care about the, the content. I mean, they're clearly not designed so that I can read them, <laughs> right? It's they're, they're meant. It's meant to be difficult for me to read them, which um, I always want to believe means that there's like a prize you know, if you can figure it out, but, but I think probably just means you're not supposed to try. 
as is the case with Seasons of Mist, and we discussed last issue, the title or the yeah, the titles of the episodes and the yeah, titles of our episodes, the titles of the issues are just merely prologue, episode one, episode two, episode three, the attack of the cl- no. Um <laughs> Uh, but we do get kind of these subtitles, um, which end up being summary text of what are the things that at least Neil has decided are kind of the focus on of what occurs in the issue. And so for this one in um, Seasons of Mist, Chapter 1, it is subtitled, In which the Lord of Dreams makes preparations to visit the realm infernal, farewells are said, a toast is drunk, and in hell the adversary makes certain preparations of his own. Yeah, a couple of things jump out to me here. One of them actually is the that you just said realm infernal, Brent, but it's actually plural. It's realms infernal, which I think oh, uh, yes, I yes, had yes. I had not thought about, but but you know, hearing you read that out loud and, and following along with you, I think that this goes a long way towards answering or addressing perhaps some of the anxiety, the world building anxiety I've been having about the way that hell is being presented as the only underworld in in what seems to me to be kind of a contradiction of information we've gotten before. And also maybe even just the way that um, Gaiman has been doing syncretism prior to this issue, because I think it does suggest what you were arguing for, which is that we're still only seeing kind of we're, that we're still only seeing one aspect of the underworld that these other places might exist with their own kind of special geography uh, special purviews within this big place that you know, Gaiman says and you know as narrator uh, let's call it or, or we'll call it hell right so it is not lucifer's realm it's lucifer's realms or not it, well actually not even necessarily lucifer's perhaps but just realms infernal plural so that that's awesome yeah, I, I like this particular focus in the subtitle also on the toast that is drunk. Um, that toast is uh, a fun bit of writing, but it's also, you know, very much a declaration of things that might come. And Hobb is unsure, you know, why he thought of it. And it's put in quotes as if he's quoting something. It's not, unlike many other things we're seeing that might be quoting, you know, Milton or uh, Keats, we are not seeing an actual quote here. It is just something that he is saying, uh, which is quite a fun uh, toast to break out at parties, but also uh, fairly meaningful for things that might follow. Yeah, this makes me regret that uh, Elizabeth and I didn't really have like wedding toasts. <laughs> And uh, we should, this is a missed opportunity to have you give exactly this toast, but although it's super ominous, but you're right. Yeah. The emphasis of that here in the Dickensian summary of what matters about this issue, what's going to happen suggests that, yeah, there's something to those lines, right? They, they do feel prophetic, uh, you know, like a vision of the future. They come immediately right after, uh, we've gotten the name of someone who has, um, visions of the future, right? In the, in the Bible, we Daniel, and then we get this line, uh, get this toast. So I think that totally suggests that that means something, that we're going to see the rest of those things come to pass. Uh, and speaking of, of come to pass, uh, there's something here that is also calling back to uh, the message that we get from the three fates back in the prologue, where they mention the oldest battle beginning once more. And I, you know, I had a question for you about that, about what you think that actually means. I think here, the use of the word adversary as a, uh, uh, maybe not a name, but a, a title for Lucifer uh, here uh, suggests that 
that really is the oldest battle that what the three fates mean is this battle between Lucifer and the creator, Lucifer and God, uh, the rebellion, right? The uprising uh, that ends with the fall. And um, so that's interesting to suggest that that's, that's going to begin again here. That's, that's epic. I mean, that's about as epic as anything can get. Um, though I do want to note that that term, that title adversary, which is actually also just a translation of the word Satan, uh, doesn't really have those types of connotations in scripture. Those are things that we have appended to it that, that really might all be post-Milton, but are certainly post-medieval. Uh, but the idea of Satan as adversary is really just referring to the battle for individual souls. This is really the capacity in which we see Satan operating in the book of Job, where he's really after one individual soul. Uh, all of that is done in the language of the setting of uh, an ancient Near Eastern courtroom drama. Uh, that context, uh, sort of all the language of that really passes us over. We don't know about those types of dramas anymore when we are reading the book of Job, but this was actually a really popular genre of story at this time. It's really just a courtroom drama. And so that's what the term adversary actually means. It's it's just one of the lawyer figures in that type of story. But I think when we read that, we're definitely thinking, you know, battle. I do recall, though, now that we're talking about it, Glenn, when um, when we last see, see Dream go to hell, um, isn't there a point in which Lucifer um, suggests or maybe jests, like, are you, have you finally shown up to, like, you know, combine your realm with ours in order to engage in the struggle um, as if there isn't like an ongoing war and that, you know, the nation state of hell and the nation state of the dream country can <laughs> can kind of ally themselves to engage in, you know, a better strategic posturing for both. Am I remembering that correctly? Oh, you are remembering that correctly. Uh, it's something I think we're going to definitely take up in the the wrap up for Season of Mist when we get you know a lot more about what's going on in hell. I mean, Dream hasn't even gotten there yet, right? So we're going to see more. Yeah, we're going to have to think about that. Like, what are all of these you know realms? What is their relationship to the Creator? And yeah, does Lucifer really you know think of this? You know, is his rebellion still ongoing? Right? You know, certainly from the perspective of Milton and well, basically everybody else, right? It is over. Like the end result was the fall, the entrapment of Lucifer in hell, and and also you know these other angels that rose up that rebelled with him, uh, you know, turning into demons and so on. But yeah, I think there's strong suggestion, certainly in a hope in hell, that for Lucifer this is still ongoing, and that he actually still thinks he can win. Right, that if he just gets enough allies, uh, which you know I would read that book. That I mean, someone has written that book, I'm sure, and I would definitely read it. So uh, let's talk about favorite panels, Glenn. What was your favorite panel and was it featuring part of the library? Yeah, I feel like this is another place where you're going to get to take a drink, Brent, because obviously for me, it's the library. And specifically, I, I love the panel where we get uh, Lucian and, and Matthew they're sort of heading toward the door to go attend to Dream. That's the the, the sort of biggest uh, sort of most zoomed out of view of the library we get so it's not actually the panel where we get the the titles of the of the books but where we get a sense of uh, part of the library as a, a sort of bigger space and this part of the library it's it's actually about one and a half rooms i think that we see there it's very 18th century aristocratic estate i mean it's, it's all right angles and straight lines and 
everything is decorated, right? There's a, a chandelier, there's a fireplace, there's a globe, there's some chairs. Although the chairs are totally out of place, by the way, they're like, they're not 18th century aristocratic. They're like very 1950s sort of modernist there. I think you could actually probably get these chairs at Ikea now, but it's the only thing that doesn't fit in with the rest of that decor, though I still quite like them. Uh, but of course, also, right, there are books everywhere, right? Floor to ceiling shelves. But the closest thing to us here is a statue. But what it is a statue of is totally unclear to me. And I'm hoping that you've got some ideas or, you know, maybe Klinger or Bender do, because it appears to me that it is a person who has just been wrapped in like mummy linen, but has decided to get up. Like, no thanks, I don't want to be mummified today. We don't we don't see a face, but we do see like one hand kind of poking out of this wrapping. And it is actually a really, really terrifying statue. And it's just here in this nice genteel library and I love it. But I don't know what it is. I love it a lot too. And I also do not know what it is. Um, and I couldn't decide at first whether it was a visitor to the library, but I think that that does not make sense giving some of the coloration of it. And it, it's fascinating because immediately your mind can race through not only, you know, what historical or fictional character or creature this could be depicting, but also it could also be a, you know, fictional character that exists in any number of these volumes that never really were were finished that were just dreams of their authors and there there is also you know some iconography up near the ceiling that you know looks kind of like um you know could be hieroglyphics or cuneiform i mean it's not actually either of those things but it's a sort of pictographic writing i guess is what i'm trying to say that also might be from some imaginary uh, I'm at, you know, some kind of, you know, unwritten fantasy novel or something like that, or possibly the the section on, um, you know, imaginary religions, uh, you know, speculative anthropology or something like that. But there's also a portrait. And so uh, I can't tell who that is, you know, it could be, you know, it could be anybody, I suppose, right? But there's a portrait of a person. And yeah, maybe that's also a portrait of someone who appears in a book, but is not, you know, not real, not in a book that really exists in the material world. Maybe that's the source of these, the decorations here. Though, I will say the globe is, you know, it's Earth, it's North and South America. We get there and it looks it looks mostly right. So um, who knows? Well, all right, Brent, what was your favorite panel this issue? It was almost the same panel, uh, I'll be honest. Um, but one of the things that we have with this particular issue, and we have for at least one more issue, is the return of um, uh, Kelly Jones on art. And we last saw Kelly Jones as penciler on uh, Calliope and Dream of a Thousand Cats. Um, there's a lot of things I really like about the way Kelly Jones does draw dream. Um, and in Highbender, Sam and Companion, there's a brief interview or excerpt from a paraphrased bit of a discussion with Kelly Jones about doing the art in which he mentions that the challenge with Sandman is that he, he talks a lot, but he doesn't, he's not, there's not a lot of action here. This isn't a Batman or Superman comic. And so a lot of the characterization comes across in how the cape or cloak or flowing robes kind of are depicted to kind of also give you a hint as to how he is feeling. So my favorite panel is in the second to last page um, where we have the triptych um, that you had mentioned before, Glenn, of dream he's putting on his helm and he's saying sometimes that we have to do what we must. Sometimes you choose. Um, my favorite panel then is the second panel of this where he is 
attaching his helm or placing it on his head. Um, he is covering his massive, um, very poofy haircut fully in the helm. Um, and he says, and sometimes we have no choice at all. Um, this is dream being very declarative that he is putting on his helm of office. He is about to go do his thing. And there's a few things I particularly like about this one thing, um, which Highbender discusses briefly with Neil Gaiman, the Sandman companion is that, um, Neil really likes the way Kelly, uh, drew the helm in particular because it does not look so much like it's a throwback to the gas mask. Um, of the Golden Age Sandman, it looks more like it is uh, uh, something crafted maybe from the bone of something, and it looks more like this is the spinal column of some creature. Um, more on that down the line. Um, so it looks more kind of like an alien thing. Um, I also really like the big billowing kind of cloak that is wrapped around him. I also like to think a lot about kind of the fraying pockets of it at the edges. And I wonder, on the one hand, is this dream and kind of it's evoking his uncertainty of what he's about to do or is it him just not wanting to wear his good outfit before he goes into battle <laughs> and so he doesn't mind if it gets more torn or sundered um, or is it torn and sundered from a prior battle he's had and it's the thing it's his lucky you know cloak that he puts on when he's about to do battle or is it he is about to enter a realm where things are themselves torn and sundered and so he is trying to appear that he fits in this is not at all the costume that we see him depicted in for instance when he visits destiny's realm right so it juxtaposes nice with what we saw in the prologue where this is not a fancy outfit where he's got you know his his uh his nice clean stockings that are almost to his knees right this is him going into battle and i really love that yeah i mean i think this is just the way kids are dressing these days you know yeah i think they, <laughs> they're getting into wearing invertebrate like you know, <laughs> it, yeah it's just it's it's a thing now I, I do have to admit though i love this page and i don't mean to ruin this for anyone else uh so apologies if this causes that effect for at least temporarily for you uh for this triptych the third panel um where he is uh waving out his arms my brain imagined that below the panel there are his legs and perhaps he is slipping on a banana peel because the way he is gesticulating in the third panel is, is something else I can see the banana peel there, but I, I think he's dancing. And the reason oh. I think he's dancing is that the first time we saw him put put on these accoutrements, you pointed out that he's doing a little stutter step move. Oh, I yes. think he just dances when he gets ready to go battle. I you know, it's just there in the art. Like I don't think he ever talks about it, but he's got little little dances he does, battle dances. Yeah. And I guess that raises the question is like what music does Dream listen to when he goes into battle? <laughs> right. He's definitely got some Bluetooth connection in this helmet. And like, what's he listening to? <laughs> Which I did want to mention because I skipped over this before and apologies to everyone, but it works well with the panel that you brought up, Glenn. Um, Neil Gaiman has said in interviews that the library, Dreams Library Collection, not only includes written material, prose and poems, it includes other media such as film, art and music, including movies. Um, and, and here's a quote that Leslie Klinger gives us, uh, all the stories Orson Welles made in his head, but could never get the financing to film. So it could be that dream is listening to like, you know, a David Bowie album that was dreamed of, but never created. Well, I think that then is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. 
And if you would like to get access to our bonus series on the H.P. Lovecraft novel at the Mountains of Madness and also you know, dozens, really dozens of other bonus episodes, I hope you'll join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. Your support keeps this show going, keeps all the shows on the network going. We really appreciate the help with that. And this show will be back next month with Season of Mists, Chapter 2. And until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>